Well, good evening, LCM. We've had an amazing season of preaching, repentance, and growth lately, haven't we? Tonight is going to be a time of teaching and edification, and I'm looking forward to that. It's been an extraordinary display of the sovereignty of our God to look back upon his faithfulness and the way that he's led us, the way that he has ordered and developed our series of foundation studies, from the books we've chosen to the content. This evening is going to work just a little bit differently than it usually does. We're going to cover Ezra chapter 2, and we're going to begin chapter 3. However, the vast majority of our time is going to be taking uh, what can only be referred to as a gratuitous victory lap. We'll be reviewing things that we have already had revealed to us in previous studies and looking at the ways that they greatly benefit us in understanding the overall scope of Ezra Nehemiah. We want to start with you with a slide. And this slide is an amazing slide because in this slide we get to see how God has led us through all of our foundation's teachings. So we're going to start in August of 2019. We began first and second Samuel. During that time, we discovered the nature of the Davidic king from Judah that would unite all facets of Israel and deliver them into an eternal monarchy. Amen. Then, in January of 2020, we began first and second Chronicles. During that time, we became better acquainted with the purpose of genealogies enumerating specific promises to Israel as a specific and identifiable people called Israel. In January of 2021, we began Jeremiah. During that time, we developed a better understanding of the New Covenant and the Book of Consolation that requires both houses of Israel to be united in salvation. Then in November of 2021, we began Daniel. During that time, we began to understand the role of the Gentile beastly powers that would be used to achieve Adonai's purposes in conforming his nation into his image. March of 2022, we began Esther. During that time, our understanding of the Persian Empire was revolutionized. And we saw the multifaceted ways in which Adonai is always at work in the nation of Israel to achieve his purpose for them. Man, is that slide something else, isn't it? Wow. To look over the course of the last couple few years and to see where the Lord has led us. You know, as we look at this slide and contemplate where he's led us, and as we approach the midpoint of 2022, it is incumbent upon us to review, reflect, even renew these important revelations that our king has so faithfully given to us. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah can only be properly comprehended in the light of the revelation that Adonai has already led us to. Revelation like this slide right here. As a community, it feels as if we are living in our own version of Psalm 77, Verses 19 through 20. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. 
Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So last session we learned that Ezra and Nehemiah are best understood as a singular book. Look at this slide from Dave's annotated reference Bible notes. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were regarded as one book in two parts by the Jews and early Christians. In Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament and in early printed editions of the Hebrew text, they were treated and reckoned as one book. The 685 verses being numbered from the first verse of Ezra on through the last verse of Nehemiah. The middle verse was given as Nehemiah 3, verse 32. The notes were placed at the end of Nehemiah. The divisions of the book, Ezra and Nehemiah, and later printed copies, broke up the fourth and tenth sedarim, or cycles of public reading, which began with Ezra 8, verse 35, and ended with Nehemiah 2, verse 10. So the singular book is very obviously and intentionally connected to Chronicles by the decree of Cyrus. Second Chronicles ends with the issuing of the decree by Cyrus, and Ezra's opening lines are the decree of Cyrus. Do you remember that from last week? Yes. This means that the story of how Israel came to be in a situation where there was no remedy for the discipline that they must endure is followed by Ezra and Nehemiah's testimony regarding the faithfulness of Adonai to continue his plan in the format of another kind of exodus. Amen. Israel's northern grouping went into captivity during the time of the Assyrians, and Israel's southern grouping went into captivity in the time of the Babylonians. They are now presented as returning in three ways that are led by the family heads of Judah and Benjamin. You guys can see this familiar slide on the screen. In our first box, we have Zerubbabel, who led the first wave that established the altar and rebuilt the temple. He could be seen as solidifying the heart of the nation, a nation that is made up of 12 tribes and is called Israel. Our next box is led by Ezra. This is the second wave that established the practice of the law in the people. He could be seen as renewing the soul of the nation itself, a nation made up of 12 tribes called Israel. Then our third wave, led by Nehemiah. This wave established the wall, as well as rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. He could be seen as reviving the physical strength of the nation that was made up of 12 tribes and called Israel. These things not only resemble the function of the Tanakh itself, but they also are an important continuation of the prophecy given in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. I'm going to read that to you out of the NASB. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. The Lord delivered Israel out of Egypt as one nation and then prophesied to Israel, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This very important statement is preceded by a statement about the oneness of God. In our time, there are quite a few destructive and errant ideas about exactly how to define Israel. Most of them are 
well-meaning, but they're also ill-informed. Adonai has a specific and singular people that he named Israel, and the plan of redemption hangs upon those people. Moses understood the heart and character of God when he remarked in Exodus 15, 13, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. You see, the people that Adonai's unfailing love, redemption, and strength were directed towards are the 12 tribes known as Israel. It was a mystery that any other people would share in this redemptive plan for the 12 tribes. We want to assist you tonight in avoiding unnecessary errors by focusing you on the truth, and hear me, the truth that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is detailing Adonai's working to solidify the heart, the soul, and strength of all 12 tribes that comprise Israel as a singular nation. This endeavor is initiated by the princely tribe of Judah and Benjamin that comprised the southern kingdom during the previous periods of temporary separation. The goal of God, however, has always been a singular nation ruled by the Messiah who would descend from Judah. So as we pointed out in our last session, you should think of this period as reiterating the exodus that originally displayed Adonai's power to bring Israel out of captivity of Egypt. This new exodus will also display Adonai's power to bring all 12 tribes out of captivity wherever they were located. This slide right here is going to remind you about something the importance of Ezra for the creation and formation of what came to be known as rabbinic Judaism cannot be overestimated. According to the Bible, Ezra was the one who brought the Torah to the returning exiles, read and interpreted it publicly, and oversaw the people's solemn recommitment to his teaching. Thus, Ezra is like a second yeah. Moses. Yes. The rabbis imply this by stating Ezra was sufficiently worthy that the Torah could have been given through him if Moses had not preceded him. Ezra is both an authoritative scribe and priest, as well as a kind of proto-rabbi who also has the authority of a prophet. His legal innovations are not seen as such, but are depicted as proper interpretation of eternally binding Mosaic law. My goodness. This principle is at the heart of rabbinic interpretation, and his authenticity is never called into question within rabbinic Judaism. So as the Jewish Study Bible points out in the slide, the movement during this period is like a second exodus, and Ezra is seen as another kind of Moses. The central movement in the book displays Judah and Benjamin as integral to the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. But just like in the first exodus, all 12 tribes are demonstrably present. Here's another slide from the BKC. It reads, Cyrus Edict also instructed the returnees 
neighbors in Persia to give them the equivalent of money, silver and gold, material goods, cow, uh, cows, livestock. <laughs> it's a dynamic reading of the slide. Livestock and free will offerings. The free will offerings were for the temple and the other gifts were for the people themselves. This is reminiscent of the exodus from Egypt when God miraculously took the nation out of bondage out of bondage, and had the Egyptians aid them with gifts of silver, gold, and clothing. Now God was effecting a new exodus. Yes. Again, bringing his people who had been in bondage back into the land of promise. Much as he had done under Moses and Joshua. The people had been in bondage to Babylon because of their failure to keep their covenantal obligations, which Moses had given them during the first exodus. Once more, God was miraculously working in the life of the nation. So most of you have been taught well. And you may not understand why we are making an issue of all 12 tribes being present. Thanks, this is because you have not yet encountered the ever-invented, creative ways that people have attempted to dissolve God's specific promise to a specific nation comprised of 12 tribes named Israel. The presence of a temporary division within the political structure of Israel, where there was a southern kingdom referred to as Judah and a northern kingdom referred to itself as Israel, that temporary division does not negate the fact that both political factions are referred to as Israel in the singular throughout the Bible. The common misunderstanding the results from the dissolution of the northern political faction is that tribes are missing what? or that Israel is gone and never came out of the Assyrian captivity. Saints, that is not, has never been and will never be true. The political faction never reemerged. The political entity of the north did not from the Assyrian captivity, but the 12 ethnic tribes did. Yeah. Every one of the 12 did. Adonai refers to all 12 tribes as Israel, one nation. None of those tribes have been or ever will be lost, nor should they ever be misconstrued to mean something other than the physical descendants of their ancestor, Jacob, who had 12 sons. So I want to show you a reference from a book that you should own. Okay? This is from Dates Annotated Reference Bible Notes. It was the first book ever gifted to me as a Christian by a woman who's now standing with Jesus. He includes a chart in his study Bible that is titled 82 Proofs That Jews and Israel the Same. I would have put the word R in there, but he didn't and we'll forgive him for that. As he begins his 82 Proofs, he starts, and this is a small portion of, of his discussion, he starts with this phrase. There is no special significance to the term Israel when used in contrast or in opposition with other names, other than the fact that it conveys the idea of the majority of the nation of Israel as compared with a smaller body of the same nation. In no case does it mean the two parts of the same nation are two different kinds of people. 
Now, you're all aware that there can be connotative and denotative uses of the word Israel. But they list 82 occurrences from every period of the nation's history to illustrate that Jews from Judah and Israelites from the northern faction are all interchangeably referred to as Israel in every period of biblical history. There is simply no time in which a tribe was lost. No time that one was missing. Never a time that a tribe was eliminated from Israel. Adonai has preserved all 12 tribes and he refers to them by the name Israel throughout the Bible. Now, that's a lot of information for some. But tonight we're going to be able to present how we receive the revelation throughout our foundation studies, us reading the text and interacting it throughout the last couple of years. That's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Tonight we will be encountering Ezra 2 and the beginning of Ezra 3. We are going to have the opportunity to see Adonai's providence in leading us through our studies on First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, Jeremiah. Daniel, and Esther. Man, you have been positioned very well by our loving Father to grasp a larger view of the Word than most believers in our current environment based on what He's revealed to us in a string. Now let's take another look at Ezra 1, and we're going to begin tonight's study in earnest. Ezra 1, chapter 1. Ezra Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. So we want to show you a slide and Nick's going to run through it. So the proclamation that we are all becoming so familiar with was throughout the realm of Cyrus. The slide that you're looking at is giving you an idea of the geography that the proclamation covered. So the darkened area from the northwest quadrant all the way to the northeast quadrant. That is quite the amount of land there that the proclamation covered. So as you're looking at the map, you need to know the decree that Cyrus issued, it covered 100% of the former Assyrian and Babylonian territories. Somebody say 100! 100! Also, the decree covered 100%. 100! 100% of the areas that any tribe had been taken into captivity. That is important as we move forward. Yeah. So let's pay very close attention to the wording of the decree in verse 2. Yeah, so we're still in Ezra 1, picking up in verse 2 at the decree of Cyrus. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people... Wow, wow. one more time? Anyone of his people wow. among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. So the decree liberates anyone of his people among you, meaning anywhere in the realm 
of Cyrus, which encompasses all former ca former captivities, whether that was northern or southern. Notice when it says, may his God be with him, and the phrase, the God of Israel. If Cyrus was only freeing Judah and Benjamin, then he would have likely said, the God of Judah. However, Cyrus authorized the return of all 12 tribes. And anywhere that they had been in captivity, anywhere, they were enabled to return to the temple in Judah and worship the God of who? Israel. Israel. This gets even clearer in the next line. Verse 4. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. If Cyrus were only freeing captives from Babylon, then Cyrus would not have said the people of any place where survivors may now be living. That's true. Any place. The point is that all 12 tribes were now free to return to Jerusalem and worship the God of Israel. This effort was led by the families of Judah and Benjamin, but it was in no way limited to them alone. The primary focus may have been captives in Babylon, but the decree was in no way limited to the confines of Babylon. In fact, it specifically says the people of any place where survivors may now be living. That ought to already be somewhat enlightening. And we have never read that anywhere other than our Bibles. I'd like to read you something else from our Bibles in verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Ezra emphasizes that the family heads of Judah and Benjamin avail themselves of the offer, off, <laughs> offer from Cyrus, but he also includes other groupings. Priests and Levites. Now, the Levites had been dispersed in six different regions that were evenly distributed among the 12 tribes. That had been true since the time of Joshua in the six cities of refuge. Levites were the object of both the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity. And yet, Levites are in the group that is listed as returning. Wow. Additionally, the text doesn't just say Judah, Benjamin, priests, and Levites. Look at that next phrase. Everyone whose heart God had moved. Our point is that Ezra presents Judah and Benjamin leading the effort to return, but the decree was for all 12 tribes. Adonai brought all 12 tribes out of Egypt in the original Exodus. And you will see tonight that he brought all 12 tribes out of Assyrian and Babylonian captivities in a new kind of Exodus. Amen. Now, lately, we have all been marveling at the sovereignty of God. And by the end of tonight, you're going to marvel at the sovereignty of God, I promise you. Because it, because it is clearly apparent in examining the order of our foundation studies over the last 
two years that Adonai has been giving us the key to understanding Ezra. Let's go on to review a small selection from the time period that we were in Samuel 5 together in 2019. What we are about to share with you is directly from the notes that you should possess from that time. If you were listening in 2 Samuel, you would have you noticed these things. And it marks the beginning segment of our gratuitous victory lap. So <laughs> let's we're simply going to read to you from our notes. Let's start in 2 Samuel 5.1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. Now, the NIV often utilizes a dynamic approach to translation. And in many cases, that technique is useful. This is not one of them. Not one of them. So we've got a slide for the Septuagint here in 2 Samuel 5.1. You can see it on the screen. Read with me. And came all the tribes of Israel to David in Hebron. And they say to him, Behold, we are of your bones and of your flesh. Does anybody remember this from 2 Samuel 5? It's about to get really good. (laughs) Now let's check out the Hebrew, the the Masoretic here. And all the tribes of Israel came to David to Hebron and spoke, saying, Here we are. We are your bone and your flesh. So while the phrase flesh and blood conveys familial ties, at least to us, It fails to draw your mind to other references for Midrashic comparison, which convey even deeper meaning. We're going to start in Genesis 2.23 for this comparison. So Genesis 2.23 says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Clearly, the language is reminiscent of the original marriage language. At the time, we taught this in 2019, the connection between 2 Samuel 5 and Genesis 2 uh, led us to understand something very important, and this is it. The Davidic king is being recognized as of the same family as the people. But more specifically, the people are like Eve of the same flesh and bone as the groom, David. All 12 tribes united in something like marriage with a Davidic king. To think of the Newer Testament, the occurrences of flesh and bone in the original text are also marriage related. And they're deeply intertwined with the Davidic imagery. We will not go through them tonight because it would stray from our Ezra and Nehemiah teaching. But Jesus said, touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Saints, this phrase is much deeper in significance than most people realize. It is far more than assurance that he's corporeal. It is him reminding them that he is the Davidic king, the son of David, that they owe their own allegiance to. This imagery is that of a messianic or messiah figure and groom that unites with his bride comprised of all 12 tribes called Israel. That's really good. So, 
We're in Ezra and Nehemiah. So you might be thinking, uh, what does that have to do with Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, in the Samuel studies, you learned that there were presently divisions within the nation of Israel. Remember, the houses of Saul and David were at war. But Adonai promised a lasting dynasty to David, who was from the tribe of Judah. The books of Samuel present David as a king from Judah that healed the divisions within Israel, oh, yeah. that united the tribes, and that ruled all 12 tribes of Israel. So we're going to read a couple more references, and then we'll help put it together for you. All right, so we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel 5, verse 2 through 5. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. You see, David came into power during a time of division and strife within Israel. He was a prince from Judah that became a prince and then king over all of Israel. His monarchy brought peace and unity to the 12 tribes and solidified God's nation as one under one king. Hey, that's good. That's good. So let's jump a couple chapters to 2 Samuel 7. We're going to start at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The promise to David was that his throne would be established forever. Come on. The reason that Ezra emphasizes the family heads of Judah as returning to Jerusalem during the time the temple would be rebuilt is a prince and king from Judah had healed all divisions within Israel previously. Oh, and it happened before, guys. Furthermore, the permanent peace and salvation for the 12 tribes was always prophesied to come through Judah for the whole nation of Israel. Come on. We think that you can see it was providence to have studied the books of Samuel in advance of Ezra and Nehemiah. You should be entering the study of Ezra and Nehemiah with an expectation that unification and healing of the 12 tribes has to begin in Judah. But it'll always be aimed at the whole nation of Israel. Samuel is amazing. Now let's move on to our studies in First and Second Chronicles from 2020. Again, what we are about to read to you was taken from the notes that you should have in your possession from that time. That's true. Let's pick up in 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 1. 
which reads, Hezekiah sent to all Israel. To who? All, all Israel. Israel. And Judah. And wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh. That they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. Here, Hezekiah is descended from the tribe of Judah, just like his forefather David. He is presiding over Jerusalem during a time of division and strife between the twelve tribes. However, you see that he wrote letters to all Israel, even the northern political factions of Ephraim and Manasseh. In doing this, he is attempting to fulfill Adonai's will, and he uses the phrase, the God of Israel. Look, as Peyton goes to verses 5 and 6, remember this is happening after the Assyrian captivity. Assyria has already entered and taken the ten northern tribes. But that doesn't prevent Hezekiah from writing to them and calling God the God of Israel. And look at the response you're about to see. So listen to how specific verses 5 and 6 are. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel. From Beersheba to Dan. Wow. Uh, that the, the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem. For they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hands of the kings of Assyria. Oh my goodness. So notice that no tribes were lost. Notice that the Davidic line of the tribe of Judah is an agent of healing and unification for the twelve tribes that comprise the nation called Israel. And just to make sure that we understand that, I'm going to read it again. Notice that the Davidic line of the tribe of Judah is an agent of healing and unification for the 12 tribes that comprise the nation of Israel. The text could not be any clearer in using the phrase throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan. These were the borders and the boundaries of the 12 tribes in the south and the north. Hezekiah even specifically mentioned those who have escaped from the hands of the king of Assyria. So if you move to verse 11, you will see that there was a response from the members of the northern tribes. Because we're picking up in 11. This is those who escaped the hand of the kings of Assyria. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Wow. There is no point in history in which any tribes have been lost. And there are many references to members of every tribe returning from their captivities to Jerusalem under the banner of a king from the tribe of Judah and in David's line. As you got to catch this for a minute, not all of them were taken. They're still there to receive the letter and respond, and there are records of the ones who were taken returning. The book of Ezra is simply repeating the pattern of the restoration of God's nation called Israel. And that nation is made up of 12 tribes. If there was any doubt left in your mind, help me. Who is it that wrote Chronicles? Ezra. 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 
I'm glad you remembered that. He was, of course, writing after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. More than that, he was writing after the decree of Cyrus. From that vantage point, consider that he details the genealogical records of the northern faction throughout the first nine chapters. And then he comes to a conclusion. I'm going to read it to you from 1 Chronicles 9, 1 through 3. <clears throat> Help me with these first couple words. <laughs> All Israel was listed in the genealogies in the book of the kings of Israel. He's writing after the captivities, and he still had their genealogical records. The people of Judah were taken captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. Now the first, somebody say first. First. Now the first to resettle on their own property in their own towns were some Israelites, priests, Levites, and temple servants. Still don't get it? Those from Judah, from Benjamin, that was expected, and from Ephraim and Manasseh, who lived in Jerusalem, were. Since Ezra wrote both Chronicles and Ezra Nehemiah, how could anyone conclude that ten tribes were lost? Given that Ezra specifically says all Israel was listed in the genealogies, and that members of Ephraim and Manasseh who lived in Jerusalem were, he then proceeds to list them. You can only conclude that the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is about the restoration of the heart, soul, and strength of the 12 tribes that are God's definition of what Israel is. This effort, like everyone before it, began with Judah, but it was aimed at every tribe that comprises the nation of God, Amen. namely Israel. Amen. You see, in our time, many have sought to eliminate tribes or redefined Ephraim and Manasseh as Gentiles. If you haven't run into that yet, you will. Church, this is scripturally inaccurate, and it flies in the face of the prophet's predictions. We think that you should be able to recognize and acknowledge that our studies in Samuel prepared us to understand that the movement must begin with the Judean prince and king. Yeah. Additionally, our studies in Chronicles elucidated the purpose of genealogies and that no tribe was ever missing at any time. Yeah. The Bible contains specific promises to a specific people that can only be identified as the 12 tribes known as the nation of Israel. Now... Let's move to our studies from January of 2021 in Jeremiah. What we are about to cover is taken directly from our notes at that time. Amen. We're going to start this section in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book 
all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people, Israel and Judah, back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. So Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33 are often referred to in the circles of academia as the book of consolation. Who remembers the book of consolation from Jeremiah? Oh yeah, great study time together. This book is occurring during the worst time to date in Israel's history. The righteous are being persecuted. False prophets are abounding. Jerusalem is being besieged for a third time by the kingdom of Babylon. All this hints at the consolation that will come in the unparalleled worst time in Israel's future. As the subject matter referred to in the book of Consolation extends all the way through chapter 33. The declared intention of everything that follows is this. My people Israel and Judah coming back from captivity and restored them to the land as a whole, a unit. The entire goal of these chapters was to present the northern and the southern factions as one unified nation. Remember, when Ezra wrote Ezra and Nehemiah, he had these prophecies. He understood the intention of Adonai as he wrote. As we move forward in our notes back from 2021, you should begin to remember the unfolding of one of the most misunderstood passages, the New Testament that is quoted from Jeremiah. It is astounding that Adonai showed us its proper meaning. Now we're going to take a look at Jeremiah 31 and verse 15 from our original notes. Jeremiah 31, 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. The Lord has been forecasting something even more unimaginable than the southern tribes being restored. He has been saying that even the northern tribes would be reunited and restored too. And with the southern tribes as one nation. If it seemed impossible for Judah to envision the salvation and restoration, their salvation and restoration, it was even more impossible for the northern tribes. So in light of the spiritual artistry of the book of Jeremiah... Rachel is viewed as weeping because she is the progenitor of the northern tribes and they have already gone into captivity under the Assyrians. Then, the same dispersed northern tribes in the Assyrian regions were swallowed up in the Babylonian captivity again. In other words, she is seen as weeping because of the impossibility of their situation. She was worried that some of the tribes would be lost. Fortunately, we have verse 16 to continue with. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They, meaning those tribes that no one had hoped for, they will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Thanks, no amount of difficulty, discipline, or disaster 
will ever thwart God's promise to all Israel, both houses, all 12 tribes, because they are, in fact, one nation. They are God's nation, and their name is Israel. No tribe at any point in time has ever been completely lost, and all that has been written will be fulfilled about them. Remember, we're just reading from the notes that were already given in Jeremiah. Now we're going to pick up in verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You disciplined me like an unruly calf, and I have been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Set up road signs. Put up guideposts. Take note of the highway. The road that you take, return, O virgin Israel, return to your towns. From verses 16 through 21, we learn that Ephraim, who is viewed as the worst of the tribes, is still predicted to return. We further noted that the Lord delights in the return of all tribes. In fact, he commands highways to be built for their return. Notice in the passage that God was seen as listening to Ephraim's moaning. Ephraim was just a son being disciplined. But his restoration and return were anticipated and assured by God. Catch this. Jeremiah prophesied it. And Ezra recorded it. In the genealogies of First Chronicles chapters 1 through 9, he records Ephraim and Manasseh returning after Jeremiah wrote it. Remember that we've been reading to you from the notes on Jeremiah back in January of 2021. It's important to note that the full accomplishment of these things will not happen until the culmination of the ages when the Davidic king reunites them permanently. The reason that we're going through this now is that Ezra and Nehemiah is laying the groundwork for that to happen. Ezra and Nehemiah is recording the renewal of the national heart of the 12 tribes as Zerubbabel works to rebuild the temple. Ezra and Nehemiah is recording the the recommitment of the national soul as Ezra reforms the nation. Ezra and Nehemiah is documenting the rebuilding of the national strength as Nehemiah rebuilds the city and walls. And finally, Ezra documents the beginning of the whole process in his time. And he emphasizes the family heads of Judah, just like David and Hezekiah before him. Man, church, truly the Lord has been leading us in his sovereignty as we've studied these things in the past. He has faithfully laid out all of the necessary framework for us to understand the goals of Ezra and Nehemiah. The framework of Ezra and Nehemiah 
and even the foundation of all that Yeshua's ministry will aim to accomplish. Amazing. Now, we just showed you how Jeremiah's book of consolation began. Then we showed you some of what was written in the middle of the book. To further solidify this point, let us show you how the Lord chose to end Jeremiah's book of consolation. Again, we're only reading from our notes from Jeremiah back in 2021. Guys, tune in right here. This is the how the Lord chose to end the book of consolation. Can't tell you, before I read this, we read commentary after commentary that said, no, there's lost tribes. This is not possible. Listen to Jeremiah 33, verse 23. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose. So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. <laughs> this verse alone, it's a death nail for seeing the term Israel as an allegory of any kind or as an Israel that does not include both kingdoms and all 12 tribes. Continue in verse 25. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, wow. haven't Sounds seen those change lately, <laughs> then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. So God appeals to the covenant that he has with the day and night, as well as the fixed laws of heaven and earth, to make sure that no one could ever believe or espouse that there would be lost tribes of Israel, or that the northern kingdom would be lost, or any of the other ridiculous ideas that are still being espoused today. This is how the book of, Con the book of Consolation comes to an end. Remember, Ezra had the works of Jeremiah, and knew that he was documenting the beginning of the process of the restoration of the unified nation of Israel in his day. Ezra also had access to Ezekiel's prophecy. <laughs> but time will not permit us to survey that extensively. Besides, we're focusing on what has been given to us in our foundation studies anyway. However, we cannot help but point you towards at least two passages from Ezekiel that Ezra undoubtedly knew very well. So beginning with Ezekiel 11, verse 14. The word of the Lord came to me, son of a man, your brothers, your brothers, who are your blood relatives and the whole house of Israel, are those of whom the people of Jerusalem have said, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Notice that there is a problem among the people living in Jerusalem. It involves the propensity to disown the other members of their own nation, uh -oh. staring out around them because they're far away and they don't have hope. Adonai is going to correct this error. But we, in this room, would all be wise to take note of the correction that he gives. If Jews can have this tendency, then certainly, Non-Jews can fall into the same kind of error. This is one of the reasons that we are taking this much time to do this. Verse 16 is God's thoughts on the subject. <laughs> Therefore say, 
This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. Let's just put it simply. The tribes could not be lost because the Lord said, I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Any of you that diminishes the Lord's ability to do this is an affront to the dominion and the nature of our God. The Bible is the story of the 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes are the nation of Israel. All right, one more in Ezekiel. Let's do Ezekiel 37, verse 11 through 27. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. You see, the picture portrayed in Ezekiel 37 is that of flesh and bones that are reconstituted, renewed, and restored to unity and life with God. That is the same wording and imagery as when the people said to David, we are your flesh and bone in 2 Samuel 5, as David united the tribes into a singular, undivided nation called Israel. Now let's pick up in verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Verse 15 continues. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man. Take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with them. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, Ephraim's stick, belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with them. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. Wow. The imagery of the singular stick in the hand of Ezekiel, it corresponds directly to a unified nation of Israel firmly in the hand of Messiah. The reason we're going through all of this is that Ezra, Nehemiah document the beginning of that process as the heart, soul, and strength of the nation are reconstituted. Then Messiah will take them into his hand. Pause for just a second, Nick. When we read this, you jump immediately in your thoughts to the ultimate conclusion. Oh, at the resurrection, that will be true. What we are missing is that it is also true historically. That the process begins in Ezra and Nehemiah and it continues from there and will arrive at the resurrection. Even in Ezekiel, 
It is a gradual process that involves many steps of rattling bones and then tendons appearing and then flesh appearing. But it's always the same 12 tribes. That's right. And uh, Pastor Eric is so right because Ezra and Nehemiah paved the way for the first coming of Messiah. And the first coming of Messiah paves the way for his return and the ultimate culmination of everything that we're saying tonight. Let's pick up in verse... 22. We're skipping a few verses. Go to verse 22 with us. Alright, verse 22. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, yes. and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. Yes. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Verse 24. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. Now we clearly need to move on in our studies tonight as they relate to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. But it's important for you to realize that all 12 tribes are present in the waves of return, and the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is laying the groundwork for the salvation of Israel under the leadership of the lion of the tribe of Judah. The order of our studies has put the pieces together for us perfectly in Adonai's sovereignty. Samuel's studies informed us that the unification of the 12 tribes into into the nation of Israel could only occur under the hand of a prince and a king from Judah's Davidic line. That's from Samuel. Chronicle studies taught us that the genealogies in the Bible detail specific promises to specific people of Israel. It even went so far as to document that the northern tribes were, in fact, present in the return under Cyrus' decree. Now, moving to Jeremiah, Jeremiah's studies illustrated the aim of God in the new covenant, namely, that it must unify and save all 12 tribes known as Israel. Now, we're going to look at our studies in Daniel from November of 2021. Again, we will be quoting from the notes at that time that are already within your possession. We will do this one a little more conceptually rather than line by line for the sake of time. But also, you should remember, these much more easily since we just went through them together, right? Daniel 9, verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel. Israel. You hear the we, we, we 
all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us, because of our unfaithfulness to you. Daniel is referring to God's judgment as just, because the law written by Moses prophesied it well in advance. Yeah, it did. Guys, you have to love the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Adonai, who is able to both predict captivity and the return of those who were taken captive in advance because they are his nation. Our study in November of 2021 then went on to teach us about Leviticus 26, verses 14 through 46, and the way that captives were announced in advance. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68, and the way that it also announced captivities in advance. At that time, we all marveled together at Adonai's ability to forecast the discipline of the tribes and also their restoration. We want to pick up with you in our notes a little further down in Daniel 9. Starting in verse 15. Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people up out of Egypt, with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Look, we studied many things in Daniel, but it was the providence of God that we noticed Daniel's prayer hearkens back and appeals to the original pattern of the Exodus. It seems that every time Israel is in captivity, the Lord raises up another Moses-like figure to enact another kind of Exodus. Daniel's prayer is paving the way for the work of Ezra and Nehemiah to be that kind of second exodus and second kind of Moses figure. Ezra and Nehemiah are paving the way for the true Davidic king of the 12 tribes known as Israel to unify and save Israel. These are all links in a chain of an unfolding pattern. Before we leave our reflection on the Daniel studies, Justin's going to remind you of a few slides, and you'll get it immediately when you see the slides. The Lord was showing us the whole time. When we went through the book of Daniel, we saw how God organized the book of Daniel. Chapter 1 is the distinctiveness of the faithful Jews in Babylon and their determination to remain distinct. In chapter 2, we saw the Babylonian king's four-empire dream. And who had the interpretation? The Jews! The Jews! In chapter 3, we saw faithful Jews facing the fiery furnace of tribulation under Empire 1. That brought us to chapter 4, where we saw the results of faithful Jewish witness, a Gentile king's salvation. Then in chapter 5, we saw that the Jews, distinctly, they transitioned from the first empire to the second empire, and that by God's hand. He was leading them through it. In chapter 6... We saw faithful Jews face the lions of tribulation under Empire II, as it was foreseen. In chapter 7, we saw a dream of the four beastly empires that oppress the Jews. In chapter 8, we saw the vision of transition from Empire II to three, 
And we saw details of the transition from the third to the fourth empire with the fourth empire's actual activities. And in chapter nine, we see Jewish repentance. We see specific details of the fourth empire being given to the Jews. And we see details of Jewish redemption. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are a zoomed in view of transition from the third to the fourth empire and the activities of the fourth empire that ultimately culminate in Jewish redemption. Is any of that ringing a bell for you? Yes. When we took a step back at this organization, we showed you the next slide and we realized that chapters one through six, they are all about true genetic and spiritual Israel. When we looked at chapters seven through 12, we saw they all had the same theme. They were all focused and highlighting on the redemption of Israel. And they were all pointing to a pivotal moment. In our conclusion, our reflection on the Daniel studies, let's read a direct quote of our conclusion, what all of that was aiming at at that time. We read and we quoted, the overall thesis of Daniel is that a true genetic and spiritual Israel maintains a living hope for the redemption of Israel through all four beastly Gentile empires and until the culmination of the ages. Well, our gratuitous victory lap has to come to a conclusion at some point. But, while we have other material to cover, so far, we need to make sure that you're noting some very specific things in what we've just covered with you. Samuel studies. They informed us that the unification of the 12 tribes into the nation of Israel could only occur under the hand of a prince and king from Judah and David's line. Chronicles studies. It taught us that the genealogies in the Bible detailed the specific promise to the specific people of Israel. It went so far as to document that the northern tribes were in fact present in the return under Cyrus' decree. Jeremiah studies. They illustrated the aim of God in the new covenant, namely that it must unify and save all 12 tribes known as Israel. In our Daniel studies, they instructed us that the overall thesis of Daniel is that a true, a genetic, and a spiritual Israel maintains a living hope for the redemption of all 12 tribes. That's right, you guessed it. Known as Israel in every age and under any Gentile beastly empire. Are y'all able to put it together so far? The Lord's been giving us building blocks that have helped us the entire time. And it will revolutionize your understanding of Ezra and Nehemiah. We know this because we own more commentaries than you do, and they do not understand it. So let's take a look at just three slides from Esther before returning to Ezra and Nehemiah. This first slide is from the BKC, and it reads, As the original Jewish readers read this account, they would have been struck by the way God was uh, the way God was sovereignly protecting them. Come on. Often when they did not even know it. Many things in the book of Esther happened that were beyond anyone's control except that of God. Yep. Who oversees history? That's true. 
And the book of Esther is filled with irony, with ways in which events turned out unexpectedly and in favor of God's people. So during the entire study on Esther, we focused on God's sovereignty in the midst of a Gentile captivity to protect and preserve the 12 tribes known as the nation of Israel. Clearly, Esther focuses in on Mordecai and Esther, who were from the tribe of Benjamin, but Esther's anguish over the perilous events within the book were expressed in the words, My people, all throughout the book. You know for sure that my people refers to 12 tribes. At this point, and the chronicle studies documented their genealogies during the period that Esther takes place. Judah and Benjamin, of course, had to survive, but the aim was for the house of Judah to produce a Davidic prince and king to restore all of the tribes according to the Samuel, Chronicles, Jeremiah, and Daniel studies. Let's visit another slide together. It has been observed by many that the name of God is not found in the book of Esther. You now know that not to be true. However, in the ancient Hebrew text, there were five places where the name of God was hidden, being abbreviated. That is, Y-H-W-H for Yahweh. Four times. And E-H-Y-E-H. I am that I am once. These letters were used as acrostics in certain statements. And in three of them, the Masoretic, they were written larger than the rest of the text so that they stood out boldly on the scroll. Amen. The statements wherein these letters occur in the Hebrew text are... All the wives shall give, uttered by Memucan in Esther 1.20. The second occurrence, let the king and Haman come this day, uttered by Queen Esther in Esther 5.4. Number three, this availeth me nothing, uttered by Haman in Esther 5.13. Four, that there was evil determined against him, uttered by the author of Esther himself in Esther 7.7. 7. Then five. Who is he? And where is he? Esther 7 5. This is where Ahasuerus appears. Throughout the book of Esther, regardless of whether Jew or Gentile was speaking, it became clear that Adonai was working in the events of the Gentile Empire to preserve and to protect Esther's people. The 12 tribes known as Israel. We don't have time to illustrate the ways in which the threat of Haman was throughout the whole realm of the Persian Empire where the 12 tribes were scattered and the way that God's providence protected all 12 tribes in that same realm that encompassed former Assyria and former Babylon. It should be enough for you to know that according to all previous studies cited, especially 1 Chronicles 9, 1-3, every tribe was preserved by the gracious hand of Israel's God. Amen. Well, it's an hour and 12 minutes in. Would you all like to get into Ezra 2? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pray for us. Mighty God, awake our congregation from their slumber. Lord, revive their souls. If there is a teenager or a prepubescent sleeping through the meeting, Lord, may his father have the courage to slap him on the head. We love your life-giving Torah. We love your teaching. We treasure your revelation. 
Lord, with all of our heart, we want to be good stewards of your word. Help us, mighty God, and we thank you. As Lyndon gets ready to read, because it'll cause a divorce if I make my wife do this, we really want to put a fine point on the assertion that it is, in fact, demonstrable that all 12 tribes returned and are referred to as Israel in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. To do that, we're going to jump ahead and share with you a, a, a special verse, one that you're going to want to highlight. This is Ezra 6, 16. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, and, somebody say and, as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. The books of Samuel foreshadowed these events led by a Davidic ruler. Zerubbabel is a Davidic ruler. The books of Chronicles literally say that all tribes were present. The prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel predicted the regathering and atoning of all 12 tribes. The book of Daniel is about a true and genetic Israel that will be redeemed. Esther documents the ways that Adonai preserved and protected Israel in the midst of a Gentile empire. Now and here, Ezra and Nehemiah, we see the phrase, then the people of Israel. Now and here, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see a sin offering for all Israel. Here and now, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. Brother Linton, will you pick up in Ezra 2 and in verse 1? Now these are the people of the prophets who came up from captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Jerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sarahiah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Migvi, Rehum, and Bani, the list of the men of the people of Israel. Now, did you catch the title of the list? It's called, in verse 2, the list of the men of the people of Israel. Israel. So clearly, we are talking about men who all descended from Jacob, the 12 tribes, and the nation known as Israel. It is impossible for us at this point to trace each of the men's names to their own specific tribal designation. The fact that we can't, though, should make it even more impressive to know that Ezra could when he was writing this. Oh, yeah. Engage with that for a second. You can't 
but Ezra could. You should also know that when Ezra wrote in 1 Chronicles 9, 1 through 3, he wrote, all Israel was listed in the genealogies in the book of the kings of Israel. The people of Judah were taken captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. Now the first to resettle on their own property in their own towns were some men from Judah. No! Were Israelites, yeah, yeah. priests, Levites, and temple servants. Now look at this. Those from Judah, from Benjamin, and from Ephraim and Manasseh who lived in Jerusalem were dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Guys, we want to tell you right here, right now, that Ezra had access to some records that are not in our possession today. And I'm glad. We don't have access to all the same records that Ezra did. And we learned that back in our Chronicle studies, but for your sake tonight, we made a slide for you to show you the 11 external source references used by Ezra that we don't have. The Annals of King David, the Book of the Kings of Israel and Judah, the Book of the Kings of Judah and Israel, the Book of the Kings of Israel, the Annals of the Kings of Israel, records of Samuel the seer, Records of Nathan the prophet. Records of Gad the seer. Records of Nathan the prophet. Prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite. Visions of Edo the seer. Look, even if you're Catholic and you have bonus books in your Bible, <laughs> you don't have these. But Ezra did! Yeah. He had access to 11 sources that we do not possess. Perhaps... We should trust Ezra and what he wrote down in his books, right? That, that seems like a reasonable conclusion, doesn't it? Seems like what we're going to roll with tonight. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah definitely emphasizes the role of Judah as leading the way in the restoration of the 12 tribes, known as Israel, into a singular nation. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah mentions Judah 45 times. Verses. That's a bunch. Wow. So how many times do you think Ezra Nehemiah mentions Israel? No, no we want to hear it. How many times? 130. Well, your guesses were all wrong. Israel is mentioned 62 times and only 55 verses. Our point is that what began with a Davidic ruler from Judah was always aimed at the whole nation that God defines as the 12 tribes. He named that nation Israel. So take a look at this next slide. The 12 tribes of Israel. Ezra 3.1 reads, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man. How about that? Scattered. And the return unto Zerubbabel, 
all 12 tribes are considered as one man. And each tribe is represented at the dedication of the temple. That is why they offered 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel for the remission of sin. It was a sin offering. You don't do that for someone who's not there. Look, as, as Judah gets into this next point, we understand something. We get that most of you did not disagree with this when you walked in. But we also know that you could not enumerate your point of view from the scripture. And we are preserving something for you that you should be able to refer back to during times of confusion, especially when in academic debate or supposed academic debate. So the listing, the listing of the men of Israel in Ezra 2, it's meant to mirror something. It's meant to mirror the categories in the decree of Cyrus. I have a slide that will help you visualize what we mean. So the decree of Cyrus and Ezra 1, 1 through 5, lists family heads, priests, Levites, everyone whose heart was moved. The list of the men of Israel, family heads, and Ezra 2, verse 2. Priests, Ezra 2, verse 36. Levites, Ezra 2, verse 40. And then everyone whose heart was moved, Ezra 2, 70. We know from Ezra 1, 1 through 5, that the family heads included Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. But we know from 1 Chronicles 9 that family heads present from Ephraim and Manasseh as well. These are the most prominent tribes. These are the ones that everybody can remember when everyone forgets Gad and Zebulun. Prominent tribes from the northern and southern factions. These are the largest, the most prominent names that refer to the rest. It is a way of indicating that all tribes were present in shorthand. This point becomes even clearer when you consider that the decree and the list given both indicate that everyone, everybody, everybody whose heart was moved went. The point becomes inarguable when you consider that Israel is seen as assembled as one man altogether and that they then offer 12 male goats, one for each existent tribe who's there and needed a sacrifice. I don't know. We thought that was pretty definitive. Yes. We hope you're with us. The whole point of including the list of the men of Israel is to show that survivors from every place the tribes had been scattered returned. They returned in obedience to Adonai and the decree of Cyrus. Look, it is, uh, we have to consider the impossible scenario that some of you still doubt what we're saying. <laughs> Probably not true, but we do have to consider it. So we're going to go into an area that we probably shouldn't, given our time stamp. But we're going to do it anyway. This is Ezra 6.21. And it's controversial because people are stupid. <laughs> so the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it <laughs> together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord the God of Israel for seven days they celebrated with joy the feast of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria. What? 
so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. In case you're scratching your head here, the Assyrian captivity that affected the northern faction, consisting of ten tribes, you know, that occurred around 700 B.C. The time period we're now reading about is in the 400s B.C. So why is Ezra talking about the king of Assyria? Surely he made a mistake. Scribal error. Scribal error. That's always the go-to. Or maybe it's an anachronism. It's just out of time. The answer is that the region of Assyria is now under the control of a Persian. A successor of Cyrus who happened to be named Darius is the new emperor of the Persian Empire and thus he is the king of Assyria. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah is going out of its own way to illustrate that the tribes formerly dispersed in Assyria are now in fact back in Israel and worshiping the God of Israel. Apparently, I mean apparently, Adonai had been truthful when he said he would be a sanctuary for them even during the Assyrian captivity. I mean, that is what Ezekiel 11 said. The quote in Ezra 6 that says, separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors is God making a way for them to be within his sanctuary and return to Jerusalem as a part of all 12 tribes that are known as Israel today. Say, wait, the Assyrians dispersed them. They got mixed into everybody. They went away. No, God said, I will be a sanctuary for them. And Ezra says the way that this occurred is they separated themselves from the Assyrians in the area they were living until God brought about a king over that area that would allow them to return. You know, since you now have a basic understanding of the list that continues through Ezra 2. We're going to pick up in verse 68 of Ezra 2. Rather than read all the names, we're just going to get to the juicy stuff. Let's be honest. If we read all of the names, you would laugh as we read them. You would forget them in the third name that we named the first one. We wanted you to understand what Ezra is doing. And now we'll move to the conclusion of the list. If you want to see more of a breakdown of the list, Refer back to the slide and the four categories. All that is happening is the list is mirroring the decree to show that it did happen and all 12 tribes are present. Even the numbers of the leaders that are listed here and in Nehemiah 7 come to a total of 11 or 12 in the respective books and then says they made 12 offerings for Israel. 68. Some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings for the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns, along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites 
settled in their time. The wow. rest of the who? Israelites. Wow. I don't know if you noticed this, but just like 12 tribes participating in the original Exodus, and they gave of their own possessions, you know, everyone whom God's heart moved on, and they built the original tabernacle of Moses, we have the same 12 tribes repeating the pattern with the construction of the temple. Everybody whose heart God moved on them, they are giving free, free will offerings to build the temple. Now, in both cases, the tribes were also aided by being given the possessions of their former captors. And in both cases, they used those possessions to build the house of God. Amen. Can anybody say Exodus pattern? Exodus pattern. Let's move on into chapter 3, verse 1. Can you believe it? We covered all of chapter 2 with 35 minutes left. Okay, I lied. 31 minutes left. <laughs> when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Yeah, they did. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the, of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So we collectively have known since our studies in First and Second Samuel that only a member of the tribe of Judah and a descendant of David could truly unite the twelve tribes into the nation of Israel. Ezra knows this very well. And he's emphasizing that a high priest and Zerubbabel were responsible for this unity and the rebuilding of the altar and the temple. That is because Zerubbabel is from the tribe of Judah, and he is also a direct descendant of King David. You might not have noticed, but Zerubbabel was first mentioned in Ezra chapter 1, and verse 8. Yeah, he was mentioned as spearheading the return of the 12 tribes. That's right. This was done under his Persian name, though. Sheshbazar. Yeah, that's right. Ezra 1.8 referred to him as Sheshbazar. Here's a slide that's going to help you come to that conclusion like we did. So on the left side, Zerubbabel. Clearly. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 and 14, also several verses in Haggai chapter 2, state that Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah over the exiles. Secondly, it states clearly in Ezra 3, 8 through 9, that he laid the foundation of the temple. Now look to the right side about Sheshbazar. In Ezra 5, 14, it says clearly, Sheshbazar, governor of Judah over the exiles. And secondly, in Ezra 5.16, that Sheshbazar laid the foundation of the temple. Now, we've got a lot of source material for this, but we put our four favorites on the bottom of the screen there. In case any of you are interested, you can look at stuff like Dake's Annotated Reference Bible, Keel and Delish, Jameson, Fawcett and Brown, Pulpit Commentary, among many, many others to prove our point. Can I give you another great source material? Would that be all right? Oh, Y'all yes. like it when we give you our source material? Oh, yeah. It's called the book of Daniel, where Daniel was given a Babylonian name, but he also had a Jewish name. And given that you're already very familiar with that practice, it should not be shocking to you that Zerubbabel had a Persian name 
and also is referred to by his Jewish name. Now, if that's confounding to some Bible scholar that you're reading, just refer him to our studies on Daniel, and it will help him. (laughs) So the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are the beginning of a process foreshadowed in Samuel, documented in Chronicles, prophesied in Jeremiah, foretold in Daniel, and encouraged in Esther. (laughs) Newsflash. Zerubbabel is not the end of the process, though. That's right. In fact, he is just the precursor to a much larger event. There's another ruler from Judah that is in the Davidic line that will complete the unification of all 12 tribes. And his genealogy is given in an obscure first century Jewish work called Matthew. So let's go ahead and read it. This is Matthew 1.12. After the exile to Babylon... Jehonan was the father of Shiltiel. Shiltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abud. Abud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elud. Elud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mahan. Mahan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Saints, while genealogical records may not feel important to you, they are vital to tracing the specific promises of God that were given specifically to the 12 tribes known as Israel. The promises can only come about through a descendant of Judah who is from David's line. The reason that Matthew records Jesus as being from that genealogy and includes Zerubbabel is so that you know Jesus will finish what Zerubbabel started. Somebody say amen. Amen. We want to circle back around to our two central themes this evening as we prepare to close. Adonai's sovereign hand can be seen in the order and the development of our foundation studies as he is leading us through these books. The second one, all 12 tribes are preserved in Ezra and Nehemiah as the heart, soul, and strength of the nation is being reconstituted. Now, it may seem strange to you that we've boiled this down to those two themes. And admittedly, we've taken quite the gratuitous victory lap. (laughs) We're proud of what God has led us to do. Uh, We show up every week scared that we don't know what to do, and when we look back over years and hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes, we see that he's in fact been leading us. So, with that in mind, we want you to know that it's because these two three themes are integral to your understanding of the New Testament. So let's start with the first theme. In other words, we're going to start with the sovereignty of God in the development of our foundation studies. We're going to flash a slide back on the screen for you to stare at for a minute. And while you're looking at it, we're going to consider New Testament concepts that are affected by what you now know. So in August of 2019, we began 1st and 2nd Samuel. During that time, we discovered the nature of the Davidic king from Judah that would unite all facets. Say all facets. All facets. All facets of Israel and deliver them into an eternal monarchy. This is probably why Matthew says in Matthew 15, 24, and he answered, 
I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Did that statement ever seem strange to y'all before? It's not strange if you work through the Bible from the correct end of the Bible. Yeah. In January of 2020, we began First and Second Chronicles. Now during that time, we became better acquainted with the purpose of genealogies, enumerating specific promises to Israel as a specific and identifiable people called Israel. This is probably why... No, not probably. It is why. It's <laughs> definitely why, excuse me, Luke says in Luke chapter 1, verse 30, But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So in January of 2021, we began Jeremiah. During that time, we developed a better understanding of the new covenant and the book of consolation that requires both houses of Israel to be united in salvation. This is why Luke says in Luke 2.25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Are y'all getting it now? Yeah. Yeah. These words are not mistakes. Jesus... <laughs> It's not just written so Jesus can appeal to a, a present Jewish audience, but he's really waiting for something else. They are the fulfillment of all that the Tanakh is aiming at. Yeah. Brings us to November of 2021 when we began Daniel. During that time, we began to understand the role of the Gentile beastly powers that would be used to achieve Adonai's purposes and conforming his nation into his image. That is why Matthew records this to Jewish disciples in Matthew 24, 6 through 14. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Look, if you're not getting it, the book of Daniel is the backdrop for Matthew 24. Right. And you cannot understand it without Daniel. And the people he's speaking to are the people that are supposed to stand firm till the end and receive the kingdom of God that is Israel. Yeah, yeah you understand it better based on God's sovereign hand in leading us through these things. March of 2022, we began Esther. 
During that time, our understanding of the Persian Empire was revolutionized. And we saw the multifaceted ways in which Adonai is always at work in the nation of Israel to achieve his purpose for them, which will help you understand why Paul says this. It's Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, Israel, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, as in all 12 tribes. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Saints, you're being given a much larger view of the word than most Christians today ever encounter, even when they go to seminary. The hand of Adonai has clearly been sovereign in the development and the ordering of our studies together. Now we're going to move to the second and the last of our central themes for the evening. Our last theme is that all 12 tribes are preserved in Ezra and Nehemiah as the heart, the soul, and the strength of the nation is being reconstituted. You may not have thought about it before now, but all 12 tribes have to be present in Ezra and Nehemiah or the promises given to them throughout the Bible perished with them. What would happen? If the people that the promise was given to are not existent, then the promise is useless and irrelevant. Thankfully, though, all 12 tribes are not only present in Ezra and Nehemiah, but they are also present in the Newer Testament. This means that the specific promises given specifically to Israel are still available to you Gentiles as something that you can participate with them in. So we're going to look at a few references that illustrate the presence of the 12 tribes in the Newer Testament. Are you all with us? we got 18 minutes. Can you, can you do it with us? Yes! Our first one, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Guys, all twelve tribes have to be present at the renewal of all things, and they definitely will be present. Amen! Amen. Alright, let's do another one. Luke 2, 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Asher is one of the tribes that skeptics believe was lost in the Assyrian captivity, but clearly that's not true. Oh, come on, you want another one? Yes! Acts 26, verse 6 through 8. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled. As they, the 12 tribes, earnestly serve God day and 
consider it incredible that God raises the dead. The same promise given to the 12 tribes are presently the hope of those same 12 tribes. You can share that promise with them, but never without them. Are you beginning to see what's at stake in the way you read the Newer Testament? Well, we're out of references. We couldn't think of any more. No, of course that's not true. Most of you don't have a book of Yaakov in your Bible. So you can look at the book of James, which is the incorrect English bastardized version of the word Yaakov. And you don't have to go past the first verse. Yaakov, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Very strange to greet people that do not exist. All modern theories regarding the 12 tribes being dissolved into the nations ignore the Lord's own brother's discussing of the subject. All theories that seek to redefine Israel as some other people group reject the Lord's brother's own testimony. The 12 tribes are quite simply the 12 tribes. And they never refer to any other group, not black Hebrew Israelites, not Gentiles that want to be Ephraim and Manasseh, not Mormons, and not you. The 12 tribes in the Bible consistently are the 12 tribes. You know, Pastor, I think that this would be really cemented if we could find a reference in the last book of the Bible. Does it exist, you think? I mean, the last book of everything that we've been reading, one contiguous story that we are still waiting to see fulfilled. Man, how about Revelation 7, 4? Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Justin, when you say Israel, what do you mean? I thought it was the Mormons. I, I, I was pretty sure that Norwegians migrated somewhere and that that must be what we're talking about. You know, I think if you read further down, it actually lists the 12 tribes. How about that? You know, I, I think there's actually another reference in Revelation 4. Are you kidding me? No, I'm serious. No way. Revelation 21, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great (coughs) high wall with 12 gates. Wait, 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 wait. This is some kind of spiritual entity that is so amazing as to definitely not be Israel. It can't be. Huh. No, it's definitely not. Maybe, well, maybe we should keep reading and we'll see that it is Norwegians. Yeah, we're going to see this industry here. Uh, high wall with 12 gates. Okay, we got 12. And with 12 angels at the gates. All right, got that. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, it's called Jerusalem. 
And it has the 12 tribes written upon it, but it definitely can't mean Israel. I thought we were talking about heaven. Do y'all see how silly? Do y'all see how silly some of these discussions become when considering the whole counsel of God's word? But if you start with a idea that you misinterpreted a New Testament verse by and then try to work backwards, you can make it mean anything. Of course, consistently, the Bible always defines Israel as the 12 tribes. You can pretend it means anything. Yeah. (laughs) And you'll be wrong. So we're coming to an end or a close, but the reality is we... uh, we never really close. We just move locations in our study of the word. Come on. Amen. But consider that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He descended from Abraham, Judah, David, and Zerubbabel. If anybody had the opportunity to define themselves as a Jew from Judah in contrast to the other tribes, he did. However, he based his entire ministry in the northern tribes and was a shepherd to all Israel. Oh, come on now. Do you hear that? He, if you want to define Jews as those from Judah and Israelites as some other grouping of people, then you have to wrestle with the fact that he was born in Bethlehem, but his ministry was stationed in the northern ten tribes. In fact, I believe that Matthew actually says this. Yeah, you ready for one more? Yeah. Matthew 2... Four through six. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be The shepherd of my people Israel. Of who? Israel. He is the king and the shepherd of all 12 tribes. And next week, we'll pick up in Ezra 3. And uh, as we turn it over to the pastors, I just want to highlight something I learned from Elder Eric today. uh, He's more studied than all of us in this room. His life's worth modeling. He reads more commentaries than anyone I've ever met. And as he was reading commentaries today, he's seeing all these wise men in academia. And what he says of them is, I've only found one thing that contradicts what you're trying to portray here, O commentator. And the only thing that contradicts it is what is written in the text of the Bible. So as you are studying, read what's happening in this unbroken chain of prophecy and what's stated from Genesis to Revelation, and your revelation in the Word will expose. Have you gained revelation tonight? Yes. You know, as we're walking through this, I can't help but think of Psalm 19. In verse 7, it says, His Word gives light to the eyes. And there's revelation that we're gaining in consecutive fashion particularly seeing the slide of how God has led us in our foundation studies, the way that the, he has arranged these books, and that is our Father preparing our hearts to receive everything that's being spoken tonight. Amen. Now, in that leading, we're, we're gaining a, a better grasp of what God is after in his work. And what he's after is unity. 
and that's unity with men and him. But more importantly, can you see the importance of which God puts unity of uh, his people, Israel? Yeah. Yeah. The number of times we, we said it over and over again tonight. There is a war against that unity and it seeks to disunify and does it through various means. But let's bring it down to us. That war against God's desire to unify his people. It is found within just our own sinful nature. Yeah. Yeah. Galatians 5 makes it very clear. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. obvious. And there's four that are listed in that, that compilation in Galatians. That all relate to a war against unity. So you have dissension. You have faction. You have discord. What we are sitting in is a room where we're being armed to go to war against disunity. And getting a better understanding of God's heart and veracity in which he states that he wants Israel to be united. We cannot disunify them. That lays out the groundwork of how he also feels about us in this church. So it's important that we take very serious tonight's uh, main content. And that you gain that heart of God for unity. And it begins with having right insight of how he sees and feels and is active towards his people Israel. In doing so, we then are going to be able to put to death the disunity that constantly tries to rise out of our own sinful nature and between and within our own homes. 1 Corinthians 1.10 in the ESV says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions. Everybody say no divisions. No divisions. No divisions among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So what we're being led in tonight's teaching is to be united in the same mind and same judgment of God towards his people Israel. And that's the mindset that we bring into our own lives, our own home, and this church. Thank you, Peter. That there be no divisions among you, but that you might be united in the same mind and in the same spirit. Right before we pray, because our pastors have done an incredible job of putting out something that is so precious that that's my uh, encouragement to you tonight. Let's just be honest. These men do these things in such a fantastic and an eloquent way that they make it look easy. The fact of the sovereignty of God over years of time that is producing to us nuggets They're going back and reading former notes exactly as it was and giving it to us tonight. I'm going to be very, very honest with you. I so love tonight, and the honest part that I'm sharing with you is that I I did not piece some of these things together. I could have been ready to shake my head up and down, but I could not have done what my brothers just did. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to value what they just did so much and realize and recognize the sovereignty of God, that this is going to give me something for personal study for a long time to come. We need more than just shaking our head up and down at these truths. More than amening and liking it. 
We have to get to the point where we allow the sovereignty of God, what he feels about his own 12 tribes of his people. If he doesn't want them to be divided, we cannot be divided. And if we're going to really engage in this, we have to love his word more than we do. Not just love eating it and receiving it, but love making a part, love being uh, integrated with what the word is saying and actually study in depth. Let's do that together. Let's pray together now. Mighty God, we thank you for a display of your sovereignty over years that we're able to recognize in a single night. Lord, we thank you that we're engaging in a book like Ezra and Nehemiah that is giving us, Lord, what you want to do with your people. Lord, that you are, that we're learning about what you did to reestablish the heart, the soul, and the strength of your people. And we see in your sovereignty that you're doing that for us here in this room, preparing us for difficult days ahead, preparing us for the war that is about to be upon us. Lord, you are preparing us because you've been a good father and you are leading us to a point of having no divisions amongst us. Lord, we hear your words to us, Lord, and we want to take them to heart. We want to apply them in every way to our lives, Lord. Thank you for the preciousness of your word. Lord, thank you for the incredible nature of your sovereignty. Lord, and we thank you for the men who have dedicated their lives to bring this to us in a way that we can grasp it. Lord, but more than intellectually grasp it, Lord, we want it to change our very being, starting in our soul. Lord, getting, Lord, uh, affecting our heart and changing our soul and affecting our strength, Lord. Lord, we love you and we thank you for such an incredible time in your word. Not just tonight, but for years of your faithfulness that we're able to see in a given night. Lord, we honor you for this time. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.